A special thanks to the Student Legal Forum. This has been an annual tradition for more years than I can remember, and it's a wonderful way to begin the forums year and also start the academic calendar year, especially for you first-year students who are here. You know this is going to be your edge over your fellow students uh, come springtime. Or if not, at least it'll make good cocktail party conversation. Um, I want to start out with a few thoughts about the um, most recent term of court, the 2017-28 term, and a thought about what may come next. And then we'll have the panelists talk about specific areas. Ann Coughlin will take up two important Fourth Amendment cases from this term, one about cell phone records and one about the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Dan Ortiz is going to take up two leading election law uh, cases from the term, one having to do with partisan gerrymandering and the other having to do with um, uh, purging voters from the role in roles in Ohio. And finally, Mike, Michael Schwartzman is going to take up two cases uh, from the First Amendment religion clauses, one that I'm sure all of you have heard about, the masterpiece uh, Bake case of, about a, the refusal of a wedding cake to a gay couple, and then um, a review, a case reviewing President Trump's travel ban. Um, on the grounds that it was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. So that, that, that will be what you'll be hearing shortly, but I would like to set a little bit of context and reach back for just a moment to 50 years ago when the Warren Court was coming to a close. In 1969, one year later, uh, Chief Justice Warren stepped down. Warren Burger took his place as Chief Justice. And what then happened in the wake of the Warren Court was decades of conservative efforts basically to undermine the legacy of the Warren Court to turn, that turned back some of the landmarks. And some of the efforts included uh, Richard Nixon's putting four justices on the court in his first term, uh, Justice Scalia's appointment to the court with the advent of originalist jurisprudence in the court's debates, William Rehnquist as Chief Justice, there were a number of points at which it was clear what the conservative critics of the Warren Court were trying to accomplish, but there were some disappointments on the road to what they hoped would happen. Uh, Warren Court uh, landmarks, for the most part, remained uh, securely in place, and uh, judicial activism flourished in the Berger and Rehnquist Court areas, eras, especially in the areas of um, substantive due process, right to privacy, right to personal autonomy. But the, I think the disappointment of the conservative critics was focused in particular on certain judicial appointments, personnel matters, the Exhibit A being uh, David Souter, the so-called stealth candidate that uh, still leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of American conservatives. Uh, I would argue, though, and that was a long time ago, that was 1991 when Souter came on the court, I would argue that the, uh, the day of surprises is over. We're not going to see those kind of surprises again because the vetting process is now so thorough. And by and large, in the last 25 to 30 years, the uh, voting patterns of justices on the court has been largely consistent with what the president who put that justice there would have expected. There's a pretty good parallel. It's not unlike the partisan division in the country at, uh, at large. Uh, the, the day is, <laughs> I suspect, long past when we will hear remarks like 
the one that's attributed to, to Dwight Eisenhower when he said putting, putting William Brennan on the Supreme Court was the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made. <laughs> that may or may not have been said, but that's, that's what one, one hears. So step by step, conservatives have been moving closer to their goal of, um, of changing the face of the court. But um, they have, they're not there yet. They're close to it, but it lies just beyond their fingertips. And the reason, one reason has been uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. I'll get to him in just a moment. But first, a comment on the term that preceded this one, the 2016-27 term, and then a look at the most recent term. 2016-2017 um, was the term when um, Justice Souter had died in February of February of that year, February of 2016, and of course you will recall the battle over filling the vacancy when Republicans in the Senate refused to give Merrick Garland a hearing and the vacancy was unfilled for over 400 days. And the result was during that time of an eight justice court, uh, one of the most cautious terms in living, in living history, the court decided a relatively few number of cases, only about 70, and they dodged the most uh, divisive and the most consequential cases, and indeed were unanimous in over half the decisions they handed down, which is really quite remarkable. It's very rare to have that kind of figure. Well, towards the end of that term, there was a portent of things to come, and that is in January of 2017, President Trump announced um, Neil Gorsuch to fill the vacancy on the court to fill that vacant seat. And in April of 2017, the Senate confirmed Gorsuch, who was sworn in and, and, and took a seat on the court. That was 2016-2017. Well, how different it was last term. The 2017-2018 term that we'll be talking about today was a very different thing. Conservatives would have to say they had a good term. They really came out of that term. It must have been feeling good. Case after case, especially the cases that were five to four, uh, turned to the, to the right. Labor, for example, took major hits in the most recent term. Uh, there was a, perhaps one of the most important cases of the term was the one in which the court held it to be unconstitutional to allow public employed, employee firms to require collective collective bargaining fees uh, from those who chose not to join the union. And in deciding that case, the court overturned a precedent of 40 years standing. In another labor case, the um, court held that uh, companies may require workers to settle employment disputes through individual arbitration. They can't combine either in litigation or arbitration. And this is only the most recent of a series of cases where the court has uh, preferred arbitration over litigation. Uh, business definitely had a good turn. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce frequently files briefs before the court, whether they are a party or not. They filed uh, supporting briefs in 12 argued cases last term, and the chamber was on the winning side of 11 of those 12. So that's a pretty good track record. So the Roberts Court, I would have to say, has clearly shown its pro-business uh, credentials for some time now. Kennedy has been holding, as you know, the, the, uh, the key vote. He voted with the conservatives <coughs> most of the time during the 2017-2018 term. There were five to four, four decisions in 60, uh, of the 63 cases that came down. Uh, 19 of those cases were 
five to four decisions, and Kennedy was with the, the, the four conservative justices, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, in uh, 16 of those, uh, sorry, 14 of those 19 cases, and there was no case in which he voted with the liberal bloc at all. Zero cases like that. So, I mean, contrast the 2016-2017 term, the previous term, when Kennedy voted with the liberals in over half the cases. So there was a complete turnaround from one year to the next. Um, Gorsuch, by this time having taken his seat on the court, proved to be a reliably conservative vote. In the vast majority of divided cases, in five to four decisions, he was with the majority in 15 out of 18 five to four decisions, and in 14 of those 15, he voted with that conservative bloc. Um, I'm bound to say that if Merrick Garland had been seated on the court, that most, if not all, of those 14 cases would, could well have gone the other way. So the big news of the term was not the cases that were decided, but the departure of Anthony Kennedy, stepping down after what, about 30 years on the court, a very long run indeed. He was nominated by Ronald Reagan. He, for most of his career on the court, was the so-called median justice. He was the one in the middle and the one who decided cases. Uh, he was in the majority on the winning side of roughly three out of four cases during his time on the court, more than any other justice with whom he served, except for Gorsuch, who's only been there for, for a year. And Sometimes those cases were manifestly on the conservative side. Uh, Bush versus Gore really decided the presidential race. Uh, D.C. versus Heller involving gun rights. Um, Citizens United, the campaign finance case. Uh, the Shelby County case in which the court essentially eviscerated the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965. So those cases would be evidence that Kennedy was a conservative. But on the other hand, and I'm sure you know some of these cases, uh, Kennedy has a long string of what I think you'd call liberal decisions, especially the ones where he seemed to feel that human dignity was at stake in the cases. Uh, the most interesting, most striking ones have to do with gay and lesbian rights. Uh, Kennedy has written the majority opinion in every one of those important cases, starting with Romer versus Evans back in 1996, uh, including Lawrence versus Texas, the anti-sodomy case from 2003, the uh, United States versus Windsor, 2013, the in which the court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, and then, of course, most rec recently, and I suspect most famously, the Obergefell case in which the court found constitutional protection for same-sex marriage. Those are obvious ones, but there's also a, a perhaps even more striking line of cases in which uh, Kennedy has used the cruel and unusual punishment language of the Eighth Amendment to curtail state's ability, for example, to impose the death penalty in cases, for example, involving death penalty for juveniles or the death penalty for the crime of child rape. And then he's written opinions in cases that use the same Eighth Amendment provision to limit state's ability to hand down um, mandatory or other life sentences without, without parole. So, Kennedy has quite a remarkable record. I mean, it's a long record to look at, and it's by no means only on the conservative side. 
Well, what we have now before us with the current nomination is what those in the trade call a change nomination to the court. And by that I mean there's some occasions when, for the most part, uh, a liberal replaces a liberal, a conservative replaces a conservative. Uh, Roberts for Rehnquist, uh, Gorsuch for Scalia, conservative for conservative, uh, Sotomayor for Souter, Kagan for um, Stevens, liberal replacing a liberal. The last time we had a change nomination to the court that actually changed the court's ideological balance was 2005 when Samuel Alito replaced Sandra Day O'Connor. So we have another change candidate this time with um, a replacement for Justice Kennedy. Well, looking to the future, what are some of the things a conservative majority, once the vacancy is filled, is likely to do? My predictions fairly broadly would be that the court would uh, restrict access to abortion, that it will limit affirmative action programs in universities, that will uphold laws making access to the ballot uh, more difficult, it will expand gun rights, uh, strike down campaign finance regulations, and finally give religion a greater place in public life. That's, that's quite a laundry list of things which uh, one way or other the court may well do. What about Chief Justice Roberts? What, he, he now becomes, in a sense, the justice at the ideological center of the court with the new feet once the new seat is filled. Uh, what role will he play? Well, I have the sense he cares about the court's legitimacy and its legacy, and this may well explain the vote which upset conservatives so much in the Affordable Care Act case when he voted to though he thought the Commerce Clause would not support the individual mandate that the taxing power would. Um, some see Roberts as an incrementalist, not like Thomas or Scalia, who sort of are slash and burn, do it all at one fell swoop kind of jurist. Uh, he seems to be more inclined to go a step at a time, but in this last term, he joined that labor opinion that I mentioned overruling a 40-year precedent. He seemed not to have any problem with that. And one should remember his opinion in the Shelby County case, the one that did such damage to the Voting Rights Act, a case which I would argue is vivid evidence that the Roberts Court, no more than the Warren Court, is no stranger to uh, judicial activism. Will we see overrulings? Well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Uh, I'm not predicting that the court will necessarily overrule major precedents like Roe versus Wade. But I do predict that the court is not likely to uphold another affirmative action program. It's not likely to find another restriction on access to abortion to be, in the terms of the trade, an undue burden. It's not likely to extend the rights of gays and lesbians beyond the cases I've already mentioned. Nor is it likely to create new categories of persons who may not receive the death penalty. So, whether they cut back by way of overrulings, we're not likely to see them build on the more liberal precedents of recent years. Well, all that's by way of the of prediction of things that may or may not happen. Uh, I have never taken cash bets on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I'm willing to stake my reputation on these predictions, but not, not hard cash. So, <laughs> there, there you have Professor Howard's random thoughts at the beginning of this program, and I'm now happy to turn it over to three very distinguished colleagues from whom we will hear. 
Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk to you about two cases. One is high-tech, that's the Carpenter cell phone case. Um, the other, I like to think, is low-tech. This is the police walking into a person's driveway um, to uh, visually inspect a motorcycle. So you have high-tech and low-tech. And uh, both of the cases are really important in terms of their implications for policing, for what police can do. There's no doubt whatsoever that the police are looking closely at these cases. And as I mentioned, they also are very important in terms of um, predicting uh, the, the trajectory of, of Fourth Amendment law, um, and it seems to be uh, alive and well, assuming that you're interested in expanding the privacy interests. Um, so I'm going to be as concise as I can. Carpenter is a very long case. It's almost 200 pages long. Um, there are four separate dissents. And I'm not going to get into all of that. I can't do it in my 15 minutes. Um, but I'm, I'm going to give you my best shot to at least tell you what's going on in the case. Um, so the bottom line holding from the court, it's an opinion um, authored by Chief Justice Roberts, is that the police need a warrant when they're going to access cell site location information from a cell phone company. Um, you probably know what cell site location information is. Um, this is the detailed location information that's generated by a cell phone's communication um, with the cell towers. And this happens both when you intentionally use your phone to place a phone call or send a message, and then it also happens automatically, periodically, when your cell phone just checks in with the tower or something along those lines. Um, and then, of course, the greater the concentration of the cell towers, um, the more accurate the location will be. They can pinpoint people with accuracy. Um, so the point is, is that the cell phone companies keep these records for their business purposes. They have independent business reasons for keeping these, these records, but the information also can be used um, to reconstruct the movements of the particular cell phone user over a long period of time. And this, of course, is exactly why the police want to get their hands on the information. Um, and that's exactly what they did to Mr. Carpenter. Um, they went ahead and they accessed his cell site location information, and they were able to place his phone to wit him um, in the vicinity of a whole string of armed robberies. Um, and at, at uh, th this information is introduced at the trial, and he argues that accessing that information and using it to locate him constituted a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And therefore, the police needed a warrant based on probable cause before they could get the information. And this is a very big deal development in the Fourth Amendment. Um, so Roberts authors the opinion. He's joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And what the court does is to explain that the case involves um, a conflict between um, two different lines of Supreme Court precedents. So prior to this case, um, the court had held that uh, the, the question of whether you reasonably can expect to have your whereabouts kept private. Can you reasonably expect to have your whereabouts kept private? And the court decides no. Um, people can see you coming and going on the street. You have no expectation of privacy that members of the public aren't going to see where you are at any given moment. And so the idea is the police, like members of the public, can make these observations too. And so there were some decisions involving old-style technology. None of you will have any 
idea what it is, but it was called a beeper. And the police <laughs> used to stick a beeper on your car, and then they would monitor the beeper in live time and basically follow you from point A to point B. And this was litigated, was the use of the beeper to track your location of search. And the court decides, no, your comings and goings in public are not a, something that you can expect to be private. And the court points out, and this is crucial, the police could have tailed you, they could have followed you in a car, or they could have had a constable on every corner, you know, m m seeing, seeing where you were going. So uh, uh, the question is whether this old beeper style technology, notice there's no physical trespass on the vehicle, there's no kind of physical trespass here, um, whether the old beeper cases would govern this case. And what Robert says basically is no. Um, the technology has changed in ways that are so dramatically different. It's no longer a matter of the police just following you in live time for a single discrete trip. Now what they can do um, is to track virtually every movement that you make over long periods of time. Now to some extent he's anticipating developments in future technology. They really didn't have quite the, the, the technological expertise that he's anticipating they eventually will have. But he's saying, look, in the future, you carry your phones virtually everywhere with you. I mean, I don't like to ask you where do you have your phones, but he uh, pointed out that people have them in the shower with them. Let's not go there. Um, but in any event, people, you know, the, the phone is like a an appendage, it's part of your body, and the cell site location records give the government nearly perfect surveillance. So it's as if everybody suddenly had an ankle monitor around them, um, and the police can track your movements, not only going forward, but they also can go back for five years. So the, the court concludes that the beeper cases, which say you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your movements, just don't apply to this new kind of technology, where they suddenly can track everywhere you go. And then the other line of precedent that we were looking at really closely is the so-called third-party doctrine. Um, under a line of established cases, the argument goes, you lack a reasonable expectation of privacy in information that you voluntarily turn over to third parties. So information that you might think is private, think of your banking records, the notion is you voluntarily handed that over to your bank and therefore you assume the risk that the bank will turn it over to the police. And so when you voluntarily convey information to a third party, the police can obtain that information without obtaining a search warrant, without probable cause, because you lack any expectation of privacy in that information. And so that argument is made here as well. We convey our cell site location information voluntarily to our cell phone companies, and the notion is that, oh, you assume the risk that the cell phone company is going to turn that over to the police, therefore you lack any Fourth Amendment protection. Um, and, and once again, um, Roberts writing for the court decides that the third party doctrine was decided in a context or a context of information sharing that simply doesn't apply in this context. Um, uh, the court says, whether you buy this or not, in those prior cases which involved bank records, which involved the phone numbers you dial, in a, it, it, at that time a landline, um, that that kind of information is relatively limited, right? It's, it's, it's fairly limited. And n nobody could envision that cell phone use would become so ubiquitous and so complete and provide so much information 
about so many users for such a long time. Um, the other thing he points out that's very fascinating and could have implications for the third party doctrine across the board is that he questions whether we can actually conclude that we voluntarily share our um, cell, uh, cell site location information with our, our providers um, because he says you can't say that the cell phone user is doing this voluntarily. Um, you, you have to have a cell phone in order to be able to um, live in contemporary culture. It's just something you have to have. Um, and oh, by the way, sometimes the information is provided automatically, not because you decide to dial the, the phone. Um, so he, Roberts, in conclusion, says this is a narrow ruling. He uh, argue, I'm going to say argues, of course, holds, but I view it as an argument that, in fact, the case doesn't have implications for the third party doctrine in other contexts. And he also leaves open the question of whether the police can monitor um, this, this or, or collect this kind of data if they do it for a very brief period of time. Um, the case involves seven days. You know, if it was something shorter, would that suddenly be less of an intrusion? and therefore um, um, not a Fourth Amendment event. Um, so, so in any event, that's the, the majority's holding. And then we have a whole bunch of dissents um, which focus on uh, a variety of different issues. I'll just briefly summarize them. Um, Kennedy dissents. Um, and what he concludes is that the third party doctrine should apply. He sees no reason to distinguish the cell phone records from other kinds of business records. Um, Carpenter, he says, shouldn't have an expectation of privacy in his records because he didn't own them or control them. Um, he, lament, he laments the fact that the Supreme Court has disconnected Fourth Amendment doctrine from property rights, and he thinks that this new line is just completely unworkable um, and, 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 and so forth. And, and then he points out the, the irony, the police are entitled to obtain every one of your credit card records that you make over months and months, but not your, your cell phone uh, information. Um, so he thinks that the line the majority is, is identifying is incoherent. Um, Alito also files a very long dissent, this one joined by Justice Thomas, um, once again stressing that under the original understanding of the Fourth Amendment, no way Fourth Amendment would not have applied to this type of surveillance. And he thinks that the, 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 the court, again, should go back to a kind of property-based um, rationale that, that would you know, reintroduce sort of a coherent way of explaining these cases um, and so forth. Um, Thomas writes alone, again, suggesting that the court should reconsider the reasonable expectations of privacy tests, wanting to go back to a, a, a property rationale. And then Gorsuch is a very difficult decision to understand exactly where he's going with it. Um, he says, I agree with the majority's implicit but unmistakable conclusion that the rationale for the third party doctrine is wrong. He thinks the third party doctrine is wrong. Um, but then he says, I would ditch the third party doctrine and the reasonable expectations of privacy test. And I would go back to a property-based focus 
but it's not clear what kind of property interest he has in mind. He says you would focus instead on whether someone has a property interest in the records, even if it's not a complete one. So it's not really clear where he's going, and so a lot of folks are curious to see what, what that might mean. So that's the cell phone case, a very, very big development. And for those of us in Fourth Amendment circles, um, Justice Roberts wrote the last cell phone case, too. It's like, cell phones are different. You know, we have cell phones, and so we're going to treat them differently. And maybe we're using them in the shower to and oh my goodness, um, so so so. In any, but in any event, this is a, a, a decision in the direction of greater privacy protections, more of a restraint on the police, and this is a big deal for the police. Um, they use this type of, or they were using this type of information without warrants in a whole variety of cases. We tend to think of very big criminal investigations involving terrorism, but they were using in a lot of garden variety cases, including especially think drugs. Okay, so it's a big deal. So the next case, and I realize I'm running out of time, but I'm going to keep going anyway. Um, the second case I, I'm obliged to talk about for, for a couple of reasons. One, as I said, it continues to build on Justice Scalia's work um, um, and, and, and also arose in Charlottesville. Um, so the, the, the case arises out of a high-speed chase that takes place near the border of Albemarle County in the city of Charlottesville. So it's on 29 North. And this guy named Collins is, is on a motorcycle and he's doing something like 100 miles an hour and he's riding a very, very distinctive motorcycle. So the police see him, they follow him, he manages to blow them off and go home. And oh, by the way, he lives near the Millen restaurant. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so, so in any event, um, they, they, they ultimately, they, they figure out that Collins is, is the guy. Um, so they go to his house, which is near the Millen restaurant, and they, um, acting without a warrant, observe the motorcycle parked in the driveway of the home. What did they do next? Acting without a warrant, they approach the motorcycle, it's under a tarp, they lift up the tarp and inspect the vehicle identification number or something and then confirm that the motorcycle has been stolen. Um, so what's the deal here? Th this case leads to a, a, a question again about which line of precedence applies. To search somebody's house, you need a warrant. To search somebody's automobile, you need probable cause. You don't need a warrant. And it's clear that they had probable cause here. They had seen this distinctive, automobile, uh, this distinctive motorcycle. They knew where it was. So they have probable cause to search it. The question is, did they need a warrant to get where it was? Um, and this was really an interesting open question because it goes to what kind of privacy do you have in your so-called curtilage. And here's a word for one else. Um, it's basically your yard. The curtilage is the area outside the home that's, don't, you know, uh, geographically and psychologically associated with the house. So the notion is the Fourth Amendment protects houses. Curtilage is part of the house. And so we should be treating the curtilage exactly the same way we treat the house. They need a warrant. Um, but then there's this thing called the automobile exception, which I mentioned, which says, nope, when it comes to an automobile, you do not need a warrant. Probable cause alone is enough. Why does this matter? It matters because prior to Collins, it seemed that the police could walk onto curtilage. It's outside. The idea was you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in outside areas. Members of the public can, can tread there. Until Justice Scalia decided a very important case a couple of years ago called Hardeen's, where he said, no, if you step foot on the curtilage, that's like 
intruding physically on the home, and you're going to have to show the same Fourth Amendment justifications. So here this case actually tests that question. The court ultimately decides house trumps automobile, and in, in this case the police needed a warrant in order to walk onto the driveway and, and search the automobile in the way that they did. And again, this is going to be an interesting big deal for the police because they're not used to having to do that. Um, Justice Alito again dissents in this case. Oh, Justice Thomas concurred, but he said that he thought it was time for the court to revisit the question of whether it should be imposing the exclusionary remedy. So the remedy for a violation of the Fourth Amendment is the exclusion of evidence, and he is questioning the basis, the constitutional basis for the exclusionary remedy. So I take it he would uphold the holding. There was a violation of the Fourth Amendment right here, but he thinks it's time for the court to uh, he, in his view, come clean and say that the Fourth Amendment doesn't mandate exclusion. And Justice Alito um, cites Charles Dickens. Um, he says that, um, in his view, the, the, the case is pretty ridiculous. Um, the, the police would not have needed a warrant if the motorcycle had been parked at the curb. And he's right. If it had been parked on the curb on a public street, they don't need a warrant. They just need probable cause. So it's parked not at the curb, but 30 yards down the driveway. And as he says, as Mr. Bumble in Oliver Twist famously responded when told about a legal rule that did not comport with the reality of everyday life. If that is the law, the law is an ass, an idiot. So we'll let Justice Alito have the last word. Well, thank you, Student Legal Forum, for the opportunity to talk. And thank you all for showing up on this day or moment when we have actual sunshine after two weeks of clouds and rain. As Dick indicated, I'm going to be talking about election law, in particular two cases, uh, Gill versus Whitford, uh, which is a political gerrymandering case, a very big deal, and Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute, uh, the voter purging case. I'll spend more time on the first than the second. First, a little bit of background. The, the court has considered political gerrymandering claims several times without <coughs> making happy either those who think the court should play a very important role here or those who think the court should just butt out. Uh, and Veith versus Jubilee, which was the last case before uh, Gill versus Whitford, uh, the court had split terribly. Uh, four justices said such claims were never judiciable uh, because there was no judiciable, ma judiciably manageable standard to apply. Four would have struck down the districts in uh, that case, uh, but all for pretty much different reasons. So you know, perhaps they were making uh, Justice Scalia's point about no manageable standards. And one, Justice Kennedy, I think you've heard of him, uh, didn't think that the plaintiffs in that particular case had pointed the court towards any judicially manageable uh, standards, but he wanted to keep hope alive in the hope that in the future, uh, social scientists, political scientists would roll up their sleeves, get down to work, and come up with something uh, which would work. So he said, no, there's nothing here that really works, but you know, I'm not going to say that there never can't be. Let's just let things sit. So in this case, Gill versus Whitford was set up for one justice, Justice Kennedy. The social scientists and lawyers had gone to work and had developed a measure called the efficiency gap that they thought he might find judicially manageable. 
It was a central factor in a, their proposed test, but not the only factor. The, the test also looked at intent and effect and some other things. Now basically, I don't want to go too deeply uh, into it, but the efficiency gap counts the number of votes that each party wastes in an election to determine whether either party has enjoyed a systematic advantage in converting raw votes into seats. So any vote cast for a losing candidate is automatically wasted because it doesn't have any effect, no traction on the ground, so to speak. And all votes cast for a winning candidate beyond the minimum number needed for that candidate to win are also wasted. And this responds to how gerrymandering works, political gerrymandering works on the ground. Typically, there are two techniques which are worked together, so-called cracking and packing. And cracking means pretty much what it says. If you have a geographic area that is where one political party has an advantage, meaning just a lot of Democrats or a lot of Republicans happen to live there, if you want to minimize the power of those people in that area, one technique is just to split it down the middle and to put that concentrated area in two other districts, split it into two, where the other party would actually have an advantage in each. If that won't work, sometimes you can't do that. What you do is say, the Democrats are going to win anyway. If you're a Republican in the state legislature, well, let's make the most of it. Let's push as many Democrats in there as we can. So that although they're winning a seat, they only get one, and all those other Democratic votes are wasted. And that's called packing. So cracking and packing work pretty much together. They're the tools of political uh, gerrymandering. Now you might ask why now? What's, you know, what's, why did this case arise when it did? Uh, part of the reason is that this uh, new uh, measure, the efficiency gap, was only recently uh, developed. And it takes a little time to you know, kick the tires and that kind of stuff to see how it works. And you put it out. In the, in the scholarship and other people react to it, it's peer reviewed, all that kind of stuff. So that, took, uh, that explains why it took a while uh, since the last case for this to, be get, to become again a viable uh, issue. But there was also pressure on the other side because there is a census coming up, 2020, and the moment the census comes out, all the districts in the country are unconstitutional on one person, one vote grounds. And so you wanted uh, the plaintiffs in this case were looking way beyond this particular state, which was Wisconsin, and thinking about the next round of redistricting across the whole country. And they thought that they needed the Supreme Court's imprimatur on it uh, within the next two years. And also, there was the worry that since this was all for Justice Kennedy, well, what would happen if he decided to you know, pick up stakes and retire or something like that? Uh, you know, go figure. Uh, so that was part of the mix as well. So here are the, the facts on the ground of the case. After the 2010 census, the Republican Wisconsin legislature and Scott Walker, heard of him, Republican governor of uh, uh, Wisconsin, uh, enacted a state legislative redistricting scheme that basically advantaged, no surprise, Republicans. So in 2012, for example, Republicans won 60 seats in the state assembly out of 99 with only 48.6% of the statewide vote. So were they able to really powerfully leverage what you might think of as a minority into a pretty sizable uh, majority? It wasn't a veto-proof majority. 
But you know, Scott Walker is still the governor, last time I checked, of uh, Wisconsin, so it turned out they didn't actually need that much. Now, in 2015, several individual Democratic voters sued, alleging that the cracking and packing involved diluted their uh, votes. It went to a three-judge district court, which is an unusual feature of uh, our judicial system, but a lot of election law cases are tried before three judges rather than one, so you can skip the Court of Appeals. And the three-judge court agreed with the plaintiffs. Uh, this was unconstitutional under a three-part test that basically looked to effects, intent, and whether the plan might be justifiable under some other uh, state legitimate grounds. Now, when the case went up to the Supreme Court, the question everyone thought, absolutely everyone, was whether the efficiency gap was a good enough measure for Justice Kennedy. So you had one tool here that a lot of people have been working on, and it was aimed at one person. And the idea was, would it work? You know, would there be a marriage or something like that? And that's the way everyone <coughs> listened to the oral argument, everyone read the transcript, that's the way the case was reported. Okay. When, the, lo and behold though, when the opinion came down, months and months and months and months and months later, it was, uh, uh, Gil versus Wood was one of the first cases to be argued, uh, and it was one of the last later ones to be uh, decided. But when the case came down, the court sent back the case to the three-judge district court unanimously on standing uh, grounds. Now, the court was largely viewed as a punt. Uh, but the court basically found that the vote dilution claim rested on an injury to the individual from the way the district was drawn, not on an, an injury to the overall balance of political power across the state. So he said you have to allege and prove individualized injury. It's not enough that your political party is screwed. But, so the court sent it back to the Western District of Wisconsin where the voters filed their amended complaint on September the 14th. And the State Democratic Party has moved to uh, intervene to push a separate association uh, claim. Now, Justice Key, you might wonder, why were the liberals on board with this? Well, Justice Kagan, writing for the liberals, uh, fully concurred in the opinion, standing grounds. But she also added this uh, hope uh, and it's basically instructions uh, in her uh, concurrence on how the plaintiffs on remand could fully pursue this right to association claim for which they could assert standing of the kind that they had. That's because injury to the sort of general political balance uh, in the state. Now the question for still for some was, well, sure, but why did the liberals jump on board here? Well, many saw it as a way for the liberals to keep hope alive that Justice Kennedy might be on board in the future. Well, see, that really didn't work out. Uh, with another conservative appointment, I don't see much hope for these claims going forward. Uh, I think there's a pretty great chance uh, that the court will find them categorically non-judiciable uh, with another conservative appointee. And to my mind, that's a great uh, shame. Now, the other case is, as uh, said, was Husted. This concerns purging. And what purging is, is getting people off the voting rolls for various reasons so that they can no longer vote. And here's how it worked in Ohio. The state legislature passed a law, said the people uh, who didn't vote for two years would be sent a pre-addressed postage prepaid card 
asking them to verify if they still lived at the same address. If you got one of these things and you sent the card back in the mail, like just ticking a box or something like that, maybe you had to sign something, I don't know, you're fine. You suffered no consequences. You could vote. If you didn't send the card in, though, and you didn't vote for the next four years, you were presumed to have moved and automatically removed from the rolls, which meant that you had to register again if you wanted to vote, which is you know, a bit of a hassle. So the plaintiff's claim here was not constitutional, it was statutory. They said that this process of kicking people off the rolls because they didn't vote violated the National, the National Voter Registration Act. It's a very complicated statute, so I'm not going to go down deep in it. I'm going to take some huge shortcuts, but I'll tell you what it basically came down to. Now, the central statutory question was whether the process Ohio, that Ohio had set up, either the pre-card sending bit of it, if you don't vote for two years, you, get a, you trigger this card that comes to you, or the postcard uh, bit. If you wait, don't vote after, if you don't turn the card, send the card back in, and you don't vote for four years, you're then automatically taken off the roll. Whether that violated the act's so-called failure to vote clause. And that clause provides a state program, quote, shall not result in the removal of a name of any person by reason of the person's failure to vote. So that's what it all came down to. Now, any of you all, any law student, uh, can guess the real issue is what kind of causality the by reason of a person's failure to vote require. There are three choices, right? But for, proximate cause, or sole cause. Under the first two types of causation, the plaintiffs would have won. Under the third, the sole cause, the state would have won. Now, Justice Alito writing for the court, and here the court would be the five conservatives, uh, said, you guessed it, sole causation uh, was what was required under the statute. And Breyer, writing for the four liberals in dissent, said that at least with respect to the first stage, the trigger stage, don't vote for two years, you get this card. He said, it is the failure to vote that's doing all the work. And so that's illegal. So you might want to ask, though, you know, why, why was this election law case, most election law cases, you know, garner some interest. But why was this case so closely watched and thought to be so important if it just concerned the wording of a particular statute, and one that was very complicated at that, and didn't really have any implications beyond purging? And I would suggest several answers. First, I mean, purging can be important and make a difference in what turns out to be a close election. But also, there, we've had, in this country, we've had a long history, uh, call this now, we now refer to it as the voting wars where different people have tried to make it hard or impossible for other people to vote. Historically, you can look at things like uh, poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather tests, things like that, where people tried to come up with ways of screening out particular demographic uh, groups. No, now, those old-fashioned type devices you can't use anymore, they're pretty, uh, pretty obvious. But people have moved to more subtle uh, ones, like uh, ID, imposing certain kinds of ID requirements when you go to vote, advanced voting, restricting number of days in some places that you can, uh, you can vote in advance of the actual election day, 
where you locate polls, the number of polling locations you have, how easy it is to register as an initial <laughs> matter, whether you allow absentee voting and under what circumstances, whether you allow mail-in voting or you have, uh, say, absentees have to be handled you know, at an office or something like that, to also like intimidation by poll watchers, felon disenfranchisement, you name it, there are a lot of them. And it is thought that uh, some of these things are more effective or make a larger difference than others. But even the smaller ones, when you think of it, add up when they employed with others. It's kind of cumulative, there can be a cumulative effect here. Now, in itself, as I suggested, there aren't many consequences of this case outside of purging of non-voters. But it's important to a lot of people, I think, on both sides because it's a battle in a larger war that people on both sides feel very strongly about. On the one hand, you have uh, people claiming that you need to prevent voting fraud, and there's a lot of voting fraud. Uh, and on the other, you have, no, 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 well, there isn't that much voting fraud. And what this amounts to, uh, these mechanisms amount to, selective disenfranchisement. And each side accuses the other of bad faith and politics. Okay? I have my own sympathies here, but in the interest of time, and I know you're all eager to get onto the religious uh, discussion, I'll hand things over to Micah. Thanks. So, uh, so thanks to Professor Howard and to the Student Legal Forum for uh, inviting me to do this. Um, my assignment is to talk about two religious freedom cases from the last term, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission and Trump versus Hawaii. Um, both of these cases involve claims that public officials acted with hostility toward a religious minority. Um, and in the short time I have, I, I want to just briefly outline uh, the facts of these cases and the legal issues they presented. Um, and then I, I want to sketch a critical contrast between, uh, between the two of them. Um, let me start with Masterpiece. This case was billed as a blockbuster, and indeed it had the raw materials, so to speak. Um, the, puns, the puns just came fast and furious with, Ma with Masterpiece Cake Shop, but I don't really have any more. That, that's, that's just the feeble beginning of it. Um, but the, it had the materials to produce a momentous result. Um, a Christian baker in Denver, Colorado named Jack Phillips refused to bake a cake uh, for Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins, a gay couple who wanted to celebrate their wedding. Um, when Phillips the baker refused, um, Craig and Mullins filed a civil rights complaint against him. Colorado, like many states, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in public accommodations. That's generally speaking businesses that are open to the public. And bakeries are public accommodations under Colorado law and they're required to comply with those anti-discrimination laws. So Masterpiece sets up a basic conflict between uh, religious liberty on one side and um, LGBT rights uh, on the other. And the, the, the basic question is, can the baker be required to make a cake even if he conscientiously objects on religious grounds uh, to facilitating um, same-sex uh, marriage in this way? Um, the same question has been raised by many other wedding vendors. There are lots of cases of this kind circulating um, in, the, in the state courts. Uh, there are cases involving videographers, calligraphers, owners of wedding venues, and we can imagine others, limousine drivers and dressmakers and travel agents and wedding planners and so on. So um, lurking behind Masterpiece Cake Shop is a whole industry of people. And then beyond that, a larger question about the extent to which anti-discrimination law 
protects gays and lesbians and others over and against objections um, from people who are religiously opposed in various ways to complying with those anti-discrimination uh, laws. With Justice Kennedy at the center of this court in the last term, and with Kennedy having written all of the court's gay rights decisions, uh, Romer, Lawrence, Windsor, and finally Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage, the, the big question in Masterpiece was, how would the court resolve this conflict? Masterpiece was supposed to be the case that would give us an answer to that question, but instead, the court ducked it. It just didn't squarely address that main uh, substantive constitutional question. Writing for seven justices, the court held that in adjudicating Jack Phillips' claim, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission demonstrated religious hostility toward his religious views. Justice Kennedy referred um, to statements made by two um, civil rights commissioners during a public hearing uh, as evidence of this religious hostility on the part of the commission. And I'll just read to you the most controversial of the two statements. One of the commissioners said this. She said, freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be I mean, we, I'm just quoting here, we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination, and to me it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use um, to use their religion to hurt others. So that's just my personal point of view. That's what she said. And Justice Kennedy held, writing again for seven members of the court, that this statement showed hostility to Jack Phillips um, in breach of the requirement that public officials act according to a principle of religious neutrality. That is, uh, according to the court here, um, this statement violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment by demonstrating hostility um, to Jack Phillips' religious views. The Masterpiece Court had a second reason for finding religious hostility. While Craig and Mullen's case was pending um, in the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission, a Christian evangelical named William Jack, and now we're having lots of confusion because we've got one guy named Jack Phillips and another guy named William Jack, so you're just going to have to keep your Jacks separate and distinguished here. But William Jack asked several other bakeries in Denver to bake cakes with anti-gay marriage slogans on them. Like he sent them some designs with two grooms and a big X over them and with some biblical verses that are opposed um, to same-sex relationships and so on. The bakeries refused and then he filed a civil rights complaint against them arguing that they had discriminated against his religious views. And when the Colorado Civil Rights Commission reviewed his claims, it rejected them on the grounds that the bakeries who refused his cakes didn't do so on religious grounds but because they found his messages opposed um, to same-sex couples offensive. On appeal, Jack Phillips, that's back to um, the masterpiece uh, case in itself, Jack Phillips argues that Colorado discriminated against him because it required him to bake cakes that support gay marriage, but it did not require other ba bakers to make cakes that oppose gay marriage. There is an asymmetry or disparate treatment here, he argued. Um, in Phillips' view, the state was picking and choosing between competing messages in the culture war. Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, said that the Colorado Commission did not provide a neutral justification for the disparate treatment in the Phillips and Jack cases. 
He didn't say that it was impossible to provide a neutral justification for treating the cases in different ways. He just said that Colorado had not done so. It fell to concurring opinions written on one hand by Justice Gorsuch and uh, signed also by Justice Alito. And then on the other hand, uh, an opinion from uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer to try to resolve that substantive question. Could Colorado have um, distinguished between these two types of cases in a way that was consistent with the free exercise clause? And they took competing views of that. But Justice Kennedy doesn't reach that substantive question. And really that question is at the heart of the case, which is about whether Colorado could enforce its civil rights laws, protecting one class of people um, without extending to all kinds of other messages those protections. And so the result of Masterpiece Cake Shop is a fairly narrow holding that Colorado violated Jack Phillips' free exercise rights because it showed religious hostility and treated his claims um, without the respect that the court believed that they were owed. The bottom line then is that Masterpiece did not answer the large looming question about whether religious believers who object to complying with public accommodation laws are entitled to religious exemptions. In my view, it should have answered that question and it should have done so by upholding those public accommodation laws and by rejecting Phillips' claim for a religious exemption on, on the merits. Um, and I'm, I'd be happy to talk more later on um, or after this about why that's the case, but I won't go into the, into the detailed arguments about, um, about that. At this point, um, I, just, I just want you to, to have this takeaway, which is that Masterpiece is fundamentally a case about religious animus, about the claim that public officials were motivated and demonstrated hostility toward a religious minority, in this case, Jack Phillips. That's the, the gist of the holding. And with that, I want to turn to the travel ban case, Trump v. Hawaii. And here I will limit my discussion to the constitutional challenge brought under the Establishment Clause. I'm going to leave aside statutory arguments that were raised in the case. And I also assume that some of the basic facts of this are familiar to you from, well, it seems like from, from years now, but really from, from, uh, from only, whatever, a year or so. Um, Okay, but here are some of the facts, just as a refresher. During his campaign for the presidency, Donald Trump made various statements calling for the exclusion of Muslim immigrants from the United States. And here are just a few examples. Right? In December 2015, he issued a statement, this quote, a statement on preventing Muslim immigration, in which he called for, quote, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's represent representatives can figure out what's going on. On March 9th, in a CNN interview, he said, I think Islam hates us. And later that month, he said, quote, we're having problems with the Muslims. We're having problems with Muslims coming into the country, unquote. After being criticized for proposing a Muslim ban, Trump went on Meet the Press and said, quote, people were so upset when I used the word Muslim. Oh, you can't use the word Muslim. Remember this. And I'm okay with that because I'm talking territory instead of Muslim, unquote. Seven days after his inauguration, President Trump signed an executive order suspending entry into the United States of citizens from seven countries with Muslim majorities. National security officials were caught off guard by the order, and its hasty implementation resulted in chaos and confusion at airports in the United States and around the world. That order was immediately challenged in federal courts on both statutory and constitutional grounds. Those courts granted injunctions um, nationwide. At that point, Trump tweeted in all caps, of course in all caps, see you in court, the security of our nation is at stake. 
Instead of challenging the appellate court's decision, however, President Trump revoked his first executive order and issued a second one, which largely resembled the first. That order, too, was almost um, immediately blocked uh, by federal courts, which held that the second order, like the first one, was motivated by hostility toward uh, Muslims in violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which prohibits government action based on religious animus. Six months later, in an effort to remove the taint of religious animus from his policy, President Trump issued yet a third order, calling this one a proclamation. And this order indefinitely suspended entry of all immigrants from six of the original Muslim-majority countries, along with some citizens from Venezuela and North Korea, just for good measure. Um, despite the government's claim that the proclamation was justified by a comprehensive multi-agency security review, federal courts again, this is the third time, again rejected the order as motivated by hostility toward Muslims. Okay, so finally, um, this past uh, summer, the Supreme Court um, decides Trump v. Hawaii. It's been up and down to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has looked at it, but it finally gets argument in the case and issues a decision. Dividing in the usual 5-4 pattern, right, with conservatives in the, in the majority, um, Chief Justice Roberts writing the decision, the court upholds the ban as justified on national security grounds. Um, I think there are many ironies about this decision, but I just want to focus for now on the issue of religious animus. Recall that in Masterpiece, the court found that statements by two Colorado officials, and if we're being careful here, it's really just one statement uh, by one Colorado civil rights commissioners, were so hostile as to taint the government decision at every level. Right. Phillips' claim had been adjudicated independently by an administrative law judge as an initial matter, then by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and then by a court of appeals. And those statements were sufficient on Justice Kennedy's view to cast doubt over the adjudication at every level of Colorado's decision making. Um, and as a result of, the, of those statements, really just the one, the gay couple in Masterpiece, Craig and Mullins, weren't owed the protections of civil rights law in that case because uh, there was a free exercise violation uh, that Phillips was entitled, um, entitled to the protection um, of a fair process, according to Justice Kennedy. Now come back to Trump v. Hawaii, right? I think it's fair to say that there has never been a case in which the court was presented with more evidence of religious animus on the part of the President of the United States um, than in the travel ban litigation. Um, and yet the court could not bring itself to describe as religious animus statements by the President that made the remarks of even a single Colorado state commissioner um, pale in comparison. The Chief Justice swept aside the President's overt hostility, claiming that, quote, the issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements, unquote. And in a three-paragraph concurring opinion, which was the last of his career, Justice Kennedy offered a parting observation. He admonished that public officials who are not subject to judicial review must nevertheless, quote, adhere to the Constitution and to its meaning and its promise. In my view, this was an empty gesture to a president who's shown no respect for the principle of religious neutrality by failing to criticize even in dicta. And Masterpiece Cake Shop is full of dicta. Right? It would not have been difficult, I think, for the court to have engaged in some review of the president's comments, if only um, to, to uh, 
to recognize the principle of religious neutrality in Trump v. Hawaii, but by failing to criticize those statements, some of the grossest statements made by any president in recent memory, the court undermined the credibility of the principles articulated in Masterpiece. If there is a constitutional principle that bars expression of religious animus, it applies to petty state officials, but not to those who are sworn at the highest level to protect the freedom of religion. That I think is the message that the court sent in Trump v. Hawaii. It was an expression, in my view, of defeat and a loss of integrity, integrity being the requirement that judges apply legal principles consistently. And it was a loss of that integrity at precisely the moment when it was most needed. Thanks. <laughs>